this is your first JAC yeah. conference, because I've been a, a couple of times before this week, this year. How have you found your first conference? Because you've been well into the planning of it. Well, you say I've been well into the planning of it. Basically, most of the, the kind of big level planning happened before I came on board, and most of the small level planning David does. So I've basically just shown up and taken the credit. <laughs> um, but it's been good. I've really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. What have you found the strangest of coming here? Oh, um, yes. <laughs> Looking around to see which one of I know, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm like, oh, I mean, you know, the, oh, I don't know, has anything been particularly strange? Um, I would say there have been things which are unique, but, cool. but not necessarily strange. So I think it genuinely is the first time ever that I've been in, in this sort of group where everybody is both evangelical and Anglican and, you know, committed to um, that, that evangelical ministry within an Anglican context. You know, even when I was at Theological College, there were a lot of people around who were working in other kinds of churches or going on to other kinds of ministries. So, yeah, and that's been really great. And it's really great to see a really mixed group of people coming here who still are united in that sort of category. So, yeah, it's been really exciting. Brilliant. What is the one thing, other than the uniqueness, <laughs> are you going to take away? Oh, do you know, I totally, if the church society thing doesn't work out, I'm going to apply for a job as a quiz show host. <laughs> 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 Lovely. Well, let's, let me pray for you. Yeah. Heavenly Father, you are great, you are awesome, you are marvellous, and you are beyond our imagination of how wonderful you are. And Father, we come to you now. We ask for your blessing on Ros as she comes to bring your word about women in ministry and how you would love to see it reform. Father, we do thank you for each one of our ministries. We thank you that you have called us, and we thank you that you have given us obedient hearts. So, Father, be with Ros now. Fill her with your words, and may our ears be open and ready to hear, and may our hearts be ready to accept it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pam. Um, nearly 20 years ago, uh, so 1998, so, uh, yeah, 19 years ago, I filled in an application form for the Cornhill training course. And at the time, uh, the application form included this question. If failure were not an option, what would you most want to achieve in your life? If you knew that failure was not an option, what would you most want to achieve in your life? I wonder how you might have answered that question. I don't know if that question is still on their application form. I think it's a really good question to think about, isn't it? I said something like this. I haven't got the exact words, but something like this. I would want to transform the way that we value women's ministry in evangelical churches in the UK. I would want to see training for women as easily accessible as it is for men. I'd want women to be employed by churches on the same kinds of contracts with the same kind of benefits as men have. I'd want to see every church making it a priority to have trained, gifted women on their staff team and making it a priority to encourage and enable gifted women in their congregations to access that training and employment. 
Well, 19 years on, that's still pretty much what I think we need and what I would love to uh, be a part of, of making happen. But of course, in those 20 years, a lot of other things have changed. Uh, not least, of course, in the Church of England, we now have uh, women as ordained ministers and consecrated bishops. So what I want us to spend this time thinking about together is firstly, why we should value the ministry of women. Why we should all value the ministry of women, not just women valuing it. I'm going to give us a little historical excursus to have a look at what that has looked like in the past. Uh, we're going to have a look at uh, what that looks like now in churches with the exciting first look at the results of my survey of women's ministry and then some thoughts about what that could look like in the future. But we're going to begin by thinking about why we should value women's ministry. And I'm going to start with 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, reading from verse 2. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, but I'm going to say mostly brothers, I really want you to be listening. I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to meet idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So two things to point out. Firstly, that gifts are all given by God through the Spirit to each one. It is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Paul makes no distinction as to who receives those gifts. Not all the same gifts, of course. Not everybody is given teaching gifts, word ministry gifts of other kinds, pastoral gifts. But we should expect members of our churches to be given a variety of gifts by God for the whole church, which will function best when we are all working together using those gifts. And since the Bible clearly does expect both men and women to be involved in word ministries of various kinds, it would seem strange to me if all the word ministry gifts were given only to people of one gender. I guess it's possible that in some small congregations for some period of time that might be the case, but in general, I think we should be expecting to find teaching gifts in our churches in both men and women. And the second thing to notice is that those gifts are given by God through the Spirit for the common good. Not, of course, for our own satisfaction, our own fulfilment, our own pride. But I think also that means that if people in our churches are not using their gifts we are all missing out. That doesn't mean that if your gift is preaching, you must be preaching at every service in order for your church to be benefiting from your gift. It's not about saying we must all use all our gifts as much as you know, the, the day allows. But if people are never given opportunities to use their gifts, never encouraged to recognise those gifts, never equipped to use those gifts, 
we are all missing out. And specifically, therefore, if the women in your church are never enabled to use the gifts God has given them, your whole church, including the men, will be impoverished. That is why we all need to value the ministry of women, because we all need to value the ministry of everyone whom God has gifted. So that is the sort of baseline that I'm working from, that we should all be encouraging, equipping and enabling women, and yes, men, but I think there are specific challenges we need to address with respect to women uh, that make it worth thinking about that as a separate issue, to use our God-given gifts for the good of the whole church. So what might that look like? Well, I want to just give you a couple of stories um, of how that has worked in the past. Women's ministry did not begin with the ordination of women some, whatever it was, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, women's ministry has, of course, existed uh, since New Testament times and, indeed, Old Testament times. Uh, but I want to give us a couple of stories uh, that we uh, maybe overlook when church history is told, as, indeed, when any kind of history is told. It does tend to be men's history. There are various reasons for that. But I, I wonder, it would be an interesting little challenge, and I'm not sure I could do this, could you name a woman from church history in every century of the last 2,000 years. That would be a challenge, wouldn't it? It might also be a challenge for some centuries to think of a man, but I, I think we would find that a lot easier. We don't tend to tell women's church history. So two stories. First, I want to tell you about a lady named Leah Gither. She was born in Wessex uh, in the early part of the 8th century. Uh, her parents were sort of aspirational middle-class parents who wanted the best education for their daughter, and so they sent her to the local convent to be educated. And when she was a teenager, she entered Wimborne Minster to become a nun. She gained an international reputation for virtue, scholarship, and wisdom. And later, she was invited uh, by St Boniface to go to Germany as a missionary, where she established three convents and was actively involved in evangelism across a wide region of Germany. She had such a reputation that she was regularly invited to consult with bishops when they gathered together, but also kings. She was frequently invited to the court of King Charlemagne and his father before him, King Pepin. This is what her biographer said. We may want to take some of this with a pinch of salt. She had no interests other than the monastery and the pursuit of sacred knowledge. She took no pleasure in aimless jests. She wasted no time on girlish romances, but fired by the love of Christ, fixed her mind always on reading or hearing the word of God. Whatever she heard or read, she committed to memory and put all that she learned into practice. She prayed continually, knowing that in the epistles, the faithful are counseled to pray without ceasing. When she was not praying, she worked with her hands at whatever was commanded her, for she had learned that he who would not work should not eat. However, she did spend more time in reading and listening to sacred scripture than manual labour. I mean, obviously, she was a paragon among paragons. Even allowing for the, the sort of overstated nature of her biography, she was clearly a woman with great gifts of wisdom, of learning, of leadership, of evangelism. And the church of her day provided opportunities for her to use those gifts in quite amazing ways. If a woman like Leah Githa turned up in your church with those gifts and abilities, how would she be encouraged to exercise them, I wonder? 
Well, here's my second story. This is a lady you may be slightly more familiar with. Uh, she's called Katerina, and she was born at the very end of the 15th century. Uh, we don't know much about her early life, but we do know that she also was sent to a convent to be educated and later became a nun. At this sort of end of the medieval period, the status of uh, monasteries was very different to that of Leogithas, and particularly the status of female monasteries. Um, for various reasons, uh, things had changed during that period of time. The centres of scholarship were no longer the monasteries, but the universities, which were forbidden to women. Uh, there'd been a rise in the power and prestige of uh, the priesthood and ordained ministry, which again was forbidden to women. Uh, stricter enforcement of clerical celibacy with the uh, corollary that there was an overemphasis on sexual temptation and women were viewed rather as the source of such sexual temptation and therefore the enemy. Convents had become places for women to escape from a male world rather than places of freedom to serve God. But she was born at the end of the 15th century and in the 16th century we know things changed and the dramatic events of the Lutheran Reformation were heard about even in Katharina's convent and the truth of the gospel began to do its work so that in 1523 she and her fellow nuns escaped the convent hiding among a wagon load of barrels of fish and ending up in Wittenberg where a student uh, at the time wrote a wagon load of vestal virgins has just come to town all more eager for marriage than life god grant them husbands lest worse befall um, I mean the mind boggles really but uh, history records that, that husbands were found for most of them or alternative places to live and work with family members or in other households except for Catherine She'd already decided who she'd got her eye on, and eventually Martin Luther came round to her way of thinking. He famously concluded that his marriage would please his father, rile the Pope, cause the angels to laugh and the devils to weep. So Katharina became Katie Luther, and as she did, I guess you could say she really uh, established a new model of women's ministry, that of the clergy wife. For Luther, the support and help of his wife was inestimably valuable in his ministry. She was encouraged by her husband to read and study the scriptures. He promised her the sum of 50 gulden if she would read the whole Bible in a year. I gather the sort of contemporary equivalent is to offer your children enormous bars of dairy milk for reading through the book of the Psalms. You might want to check with Dr. Gators how well that works out. Um, she was also given responsibility for running their household, which was not merely a family, but they had a boarding house for students and others. They had six children of their own, adopted four more. She had plenty of opportunity to use her gifts in the domestic sphere. And I sort of love um, how the way they talk to each other describes something of their relationship. She used to call Martin Sir Doctor, and he used to call her My Lord Katie. <laughs> Katie's story began in quite a similar way to Leah Githa's. Both of them entered the convent life at quite a young age. But while Leah Githa went on to exercise her ministry in that context, Katie ended uh, by serving in the domestic sphere. Yet both continued their study of the scriptures. Both were consulted by men for their wisdom. Both had responsibilities of their own and exercised leadership. And both were highly valued in the church. So I wonder if a Katharina von Bora arrived in your church, 
smelling of fish or not, how would she be encouraged to use her gifts? So, just some examples of how women's ministry uh, has looked in the past. One thing I I noticed quite a lot when I was thinking about uh, preparing this talk, the way that women's ministry has developed over the centuries has largely been as a result of unintended consequences. It's been sort of corollary damage or sometimes corollary gain from other movements. The rise of the monastic order wasn't intended primarily as a way of uh, enabling women to have that kind of role, and yet that's how it developed. The demise of the monastic order, uh, sort of in the late medieval period, but particularly after the Reformation, wasn't intended so that women would have to limit their gifts in that particular way, and yet that is sort of what happened. And I think that's been true through most of church history, that the role of women has been something which has just developed as a side effect of other movements in the church, possibly until, we could say, the 20th century, when more intentional changes have been made in ours and many other denominations. So what does women's ministry look like now? Well, recent Anglican history, of course, has made intentional changes with respect to the ministry of women. Over the past 30 years or so, ordained ministry has been gradually opened up to women, culminating in the consecration of the first female bishops in 2015. I'm not going to go through all the arguments for and against those changes, but I do want us to observe two, I think, probably unintended effects even of those intended changes, which we might do well to consider. Uh, One of which I think is more likely to be a problem if we're in an egalitarian kind of church, and the other may be more likely to be a problem in a complementarian kind of church. First is that the increasing emphasis on women's ordained ministry has inevitably devalued women's lay ministry. I think this is especially clear with respect to the opportunities for training and employment for women wanting to serve in lay roles in the Church of England. One way that we measure what we value is by looking at what we are willing to pay for. The parish worker role, which used to be Um, the sort of uh, role which lay women would traditionally have in a parish has disappeared entirely. That was replaced by something called accredited lay ministry. Uh, So when I was applying to theological college, my vicar at the time suggested that might be something I would look into. I knew I didn't want to be ordained for all kinds of reasons, but he suggested I could look into that. Um, And for various reasons, it it wasn't the right thing for me, but it was an option. And if I'd been accepted, they would have paid for my training on the same basis as a person seeking ordination. That is, uh, if you look that up on the Church of England website, no longer a category used by the Church of England. There is, as far as I know, no current route by which someone seeking to be a lay worker can get funding for training through the Church of England. I may be wrong about that, But as far as I know, there is no way of getting funding for training if you are intending to serve in a lay role. And of course, that's not just a gendered issue. You know, there were male lay workers, but by and large, those lay roles were mainly held by women and they no longer exist. So there's been an impact on the way certainly the Church of England in its structures values lay ministry. I wonder if that is reflected in some of our congregations as well. Second, in some complementarian churches where the the word is always taught by a man. 
I don't just mean in sermons, uh, but there are churches where, for example, uh, all the Bible study groups may be led nominally by a man and a woman, but it's a man who actually leads the study, for example. And I think there is an unintended, an unintended consequence of that. If women are only ever taught by men, male preachers, male Bible study leaders, male evangelists, and so on, that does have an impact on their own relationship to the word. And I want to give you an example of that from my own experience, because I think it's, it's quite easy to think, is that really true? Is that really any different from a man who's sitting in the congregation hearing sermons from someone else week by week? Um, I became Christian on a summer camp um, many, many years ago when I was a teenager. And the summer camp that I was involved with was a mixed camp. So we had you know, boys and girls, we had male and female leaders, um, we had women doing some of the, the teaching, but we didn't have women doing things like training up new leaders, doing our work with students, um, you know, sort of in an upfront kind of way. Um, mostly, if you were a female leader, you would be doing small group Bible studies with your, your room group. After I'd been involved for about 10 years, we merged with a, a set of camps that had always been female. All female campers, all female leaders. Those women had had to do everything give talks, lead the Bible studies, train up the new leaders. They had to be the ones who could deal with the difficult doctrinal issues, pastoral issues, interpretation issues that came up. That first summer, there, were, there was quite a, a culture clash. Some of us had to get over the fact that, you know, there was no longer going to be flower arranging on the activities rota, and there were going to be considerably more prunes for breakfast. But the thing that was most striking was the difference between those leaders who had previously been on the all-female camps and those of us who had come from the mixed camps. They were just better. They knew more. They understood the word more deeply. They could teach more clearly and effectively. We were lazy. And part of that was because we knew we would never have to do some of those things. Part of that was because we'd never had the role models that they had had. And part of it, I think, was because we had learned subconsciously to look to men to explain things to us rather than look to God's word and understand it for ourselves. I think there is a, a consequence of only ever being taught by somebody uh, of an opposite gender to you. It makes you think, I only receive the word through somebody who is different from me. I couldn't be the one doing that for myself. That's not what we teach or what we say but it can become embedded in the way that we think and therefore act. So just uh, two examples there. But also I want us to look at uh, the results of uh, the survey that I conducted. So if we, uh, so this way we'll have some graphics to hopefully help us grasp this. Um, so this was a survey about women's ministry. We sent out the link via the Church Society newsletter on the Jake Facebook group and on our social media. So that will give you a, an idea of the kinds of churches that we're responding. Obviously, it was online. People could respond from any kind of church, but by and large, we'd expect this to, to be from a sort of evangelical uh, kind of church. We had 72 responses after getting rid of the duplicates, the non-Anglican churches, and those from other provinces around the world. So 72 Anglican churches from the UK, of which 47 were identified as complementarian churches uh, and 20 as egalitarian churches. The other five... The person said, either said they didn't know or they chose not to answer that question. Yellow. Yeah, okay. what, what does that mean? Sorry. Yeah, thank you. So in an egalitarian church, 
That would be a church where, broadly speaking, uh, the view would be that men and women can engage in ministry in the same roles at any level. Uh, so there would be no objection to a woman preaching, a woman being ordained, a woman being the incumbent of the church. Um, in a complementarian church, um, there would be a recognition that uh, men and women, uh, there are some differences in the roles that they should have. And those might work out at slightly different levels. So some churches might identify as complementarian, but say it's fine to have a woman preaching on an occasional basis. Some would say it's fine to have women who's ordained but not the incumbent, the overall leader of the church. So there would be some differences in how that actually works out in practice, but that there would be a difference uh, between the roles that men and women would have. So looking at the complementarian churches, first of all, uh, the, in those churches, uh, I wanted to look at the number of paid female staff in uh, Bible teaching ministry. And the reason I want to look at, at that is, as I said before, one measure of what we value is what we are prepared to pay for. Um, there are some questions later on about sort of volunteers and, and people in the congregation serving in different ways. But I was really interested to, to see what churches were willing to pay for. And by paid staff, I mean those either on a salary or as non-stipendary ministers, but not simply volunteers. So 202 staff altogether, 67 of those were women. And of those 67, 38 in some kind of ministry role, by which I mean Bible teaching and pastoral care. Um, the others, I didn't ask for a lot of details, but the others would be in some kind of admin or support role uh, of various kinds. So that's 33% of those uh, staff in total were women, and of those uh, women, 57%, uh, so more than half, are in some kind of ministry role. In the egalitarian churches, this is obviously a much smaller sample, so it may be slightly uh, open. I mean, all of this is not wildly scientific, but it's just to give us a sort of snapshot of what was going on. 98 employed staff in total, uh, of which 40 were women, of which 22 were in some kind of ministry role. So what, was in, uh, so what we have there is 41% of the staff are women, and of those 41%, 55% of the women involved in some kind of ministry role. So if we compare them all together on the next slide, okay, you'll see that actually there's not a huge difference. There is a difference, but there's not a huge difference. There are more women employed by the egalitarian churches, but the proportion of those women in ministry roles is almost identical, and in fact is slightly higher in complementarian churches. So 57% of the women employed in complementarian churches are in ministry roles, 55% in egalitarian churches. So very similar. Um, so um, I think one of the things that I just want to draw from that at this point is that everything else I, I say, I'm going to assume more or less applies equally whether you're in a church that has a complementarian view of women's ministry or an egalitarian view. I don't think we can say, at least not for the kind of churches that we're looking at, that somehow egalitarian churches have got this all sussed and they don't need to worry about their views, you know, their practice of women's ministry. They are not by and large, more likely to be employing women Bible teachers. They're more likely to employ women in general, and maybe that's because there are more women in those churches, maybe it's because the working environment seems more um, comfortable for women, they get more women applicants for those sort of support roles, I don't know. Um, but the real difference is not in uh, the ministry roles. Some other things to notice uh, from that data. 
36 of the churches, so that's exactly half, employed no women at all in ministry roles. Half of the churches had no women at all in a ministry role. Having said that, 11 of those churches had only one staff member in total. So, you know, if, if there's only one staff member, you're a bit, it's either all or nothing, isn't it? So maybe slightly unfair. But nonetheless, that's a big number that didn't employ any women. And the other thing to notice, we may, I think sometimes it's easy to think, well, well, of course, if I were in a church where I could have a big staff team, that would be much easier. It's very difficult, you know, you're, you're kind of, on your own, and what you really desperately want is somebody else to share the preaching rotor with you, so you employ another man. And then, of course, what you really need is someone to do the youth ministry, and maybe that turns out to be a guy. And so you kind of think, well, you know, I do really think it's important to employ a woman, but it's going to need to be four or five people down the road, and, and actually we haven't really got the money for that, so we sort of end up stopping somewhere. Um, looking at the, the church staff teams where there were more than ten... Only one of those was within the top 25% in their sort of proportion of women employed. The churches that were most likely to have the highest proportion of women on the staff team in ministry roles uh, had sort of four, five, or, or maybe six staff members, something like that. You know, and that's including everybody. That's including your administrator and your caretaker and, and whatever. Um, yeah. Mo I think the pattern in those big staff teams is that one or maybe two women are employed in ministry kind of roles, and then they think, that's it, that's fine, we're sorted. And then as the team increases and new roles develop, more men, more men. Because we've got the women. You know, we've got our one women's worker or our one children's worker, so why would we need any more? Don't know. Anyway, some tentative conclusions there, but interesting to see that there's not that much difference uh, in practice, even when there is a big difference theologically. Um, the next thing I was interested to look at was training of women. So I asked people to identify the highest level of training that any of those women working on their staff team had, obviously in terms of ministry training. Um, it wasn't always completely clear what people uh, were trying to say in their answer, but there was 56 women that, that I could identify and identify the highest level of training they had. So you can see that there. I'll just um, go through it. Sort of from left to right, it's more training to less, although some of that's a bit subjective. So there were 11 of those 56 women who'd spent three years in theological college, uh, some training for ordination, but others doing uh, full-time youth work degrees um, or as independent <coughs> students. Further five, he'd had some training at theological college, including part-time ordination training, um, a sort of diploma uh, at a university, that kind of thing. There were eight who had done or were currently doing the Cornhill training course, and a further 12 on a regional ministry training course. The big difference there is that if Cornhill uh, is the equivalent of a one-year full-time course, not everyone does it in one year full-time, but... That is the equivalent. A ministry training course is the equivalent sometimes just of a one day a week for a year or sometimes two days a week for a year, um, whereas Cornhill would be the equivalent of four days a week for a year, so it's quite a lot more. Five had done uh, counselling courses, apologetics course, um, some other kind of part-time training course for a specific ministry. Four had done lay reader training, and 11 had no prior training at all. 
some mentioned doing day courses and going to conferences and that sort of thing as their training. So it's quite a spread. Um, the largest number is in this part-time, non-accredited kind of course. That's basically your ministry training course, a one-day-a-week sort of thing, one-day-a-week, um, uh, you know, not handing in essays, not being marked, just sort of turning up. And those, by and large, tend to be very focused on Bible handling, training someone to teach a, a Bible study, teach a Sunday school lesson, that kind of thing. Um, I used to teach on one of those. Um, I... <laughs> I, I had a, a girls' group where we, we did sort of practice talks and Bible stuff and things, but I also used to teach a little bit in their church history slot. And their church history slot, this would be all the training you would get on church history was six one-hour lectures on heroes of the faith. There were some people there, and, and this is not really seen with the women's ministry, there were some guys on those courses from uh, free churches of various kinds where that is all the training they were given before they were expected to become a full-time pastor. I, I just think that is shocking. Um, but, you know, that's the sort of level of training we're talking about in those courses. It, it's quite basic and introductory, um, and it's very focused on, on Bible teaching. Um, some of you may be aware, 15 years ago, Carrie Sandham uh, did a similar survey, uh, a lot more detailed than mine, um, and in the days before, it was very easy just to do a survey on the internet. So she, spent, she had to take a sort of six-month sabbatical and write a lot of letters and, and all this sort of stuff. But she did a survey, and I just thought it would be interesting to compare what's changed between now, between 2002 when she did her survey and now. She had slightly different categories, and I split mine up into. So just um, in order to compare, on the left, we've got those uh, who trained at Theological College. Uh, the next column is those who were at Cornhill reader training, correspondence course, um, other, which I'll talk about in a moment, and no prior training. So the big change, and I think this is really great, so the dark column is 2002, the lighter one is now, um, the proportion of those with no prior training uh, has halved in 15 years. I think that's something we should be really encouraged about. There are far fewer churches employing women with just no training at all. I think a large part of that is due to the rise of what's in this other category, which is the ministry training course that I was just talking about. Um, that's a relatively cheap and easy thing for churches to send women on um, for one day a week. Um, for you know, It's sort of hundreds rather than thousands that people are looking at to pay for that. And so I think that does mean... Uh, certainly not everybody, but by far more women are having at least some basic training um, before being employed by a church or as part of that employment package. So you know, the other thing that's really happened is the huge expansion of the sort of ministry trainee apprentice kind of role, and very often that will include a ministry training course or something like that. Um, demise of the correspondence course. So 2002, a lot of people were still doing the more College correspondence course, and there were one or two other similar things around. Um, very, there was one person who talked about uh, still doing that, but I think that's really maybe had its day. Um, reader training, uh, none of the people Carrie surveyed had done reader training. I, I suspect that may largely be to the fact that her sample was a bit different from ours and wasn't just Anglican, was looking at, at uh, women working in, in all kinds of evangelical churches where obviously reader training would, would be irrelevant. Um, fewer doing Cornhill. Again, I think that's partly to do with how the sample uh, was generated. So uh, one of the ways Carrie um, 
uh, identified women for her survey was by getting the lists of those who had studied at Cornhill. So inevitably, there was sort of bias um, towards women who'd done that. I don't think Cornhill is taking fewer women than it used to. I think it may just be that our, our sample is slightly broader than that. Um, and more women at Theological College. Again, that may be to do with the kind of sample we've got. We certainly, um, you know, the rise of, of uh, women's ordination, the number of ordained women who've got, therefore, some theological training uh, at college. Although Carrie's survey did include uh, a number of ordained women back then. She herself is ordained, of course. Um, yeah, so I just think there are definitely some things that we should be encouraged by, um, that churches are seeing that it's important for women to have at least some training, I'm not as encouraged as I could be that the main level of training is here. I think ministry training courses is a great thing to do. They're a great thing to do if you're somebody who isn't sure whether you're going into ministry but just thinks, you know what, I'd love to be a useful member of my congregation, whatever I end up doing with my life. I might end up teaching a Sunday school class. I might end up occasionally leading women's Bible study. I don't think... They, I don't think they are intended to be, but I certainly don't think we should consider them as sufficient training for a lifetime of ministry. The big thing that they miss is doctrine. And church history, which is doctrine. And I think the problem is, if you're in ministry, if you've been in ministry for any time, you'll know that the kind of questions that come up aren't, well, how should I understand this parable? I don't really know what this verse means. That's been keeping me awake at night. The kind of questions people have are doctrinal and ethical and pastoral. And in order to answer those kind of questions, in order to help people in those kinds of situations, we need a doctrinal framework. We need more than Bible handling skills. We need the experience of uh, the past. We need to understand our church structures. I don't think a ministry training course is enough it may be better than nothing, but I don't think it is enough. So that's sort of a snapshot of where we're at with training. I also asked uh, a little bit about uh, volunteers. What do women in your churches have the opportunity uh, to do? Where do they have opportunities, if they've got word ministry gifts, to use them? Uh, and what opportunities do they have to be trained? A variety of responses, as you may expect, some of which are wonderful, and some of which are incredibly discouraging. I'll just, I'm just going to read you a snapshot of you to give you a flavour rather than try and give you any sort of quantified uh, analysis of this. So here's one. Unless they're a preacher, there are precious few opportunities for men and about as few for women. Doesn't sound like 1 Corinthians 12 to me. Here's another one. None. Great. Sunday school seems to be the only option. Well, it's, it's better than none, I suppose. Uh, here's a better one. Leading home groups, leading children's groups on Sunday mornings, leading youth groups in the evenings, leading one-to-one -one Bible studies, leading 20s, 30s groups, prayer ministry, ministry to 50-plus age group, and other things I've forgotten. There, there's a church where people are being encouraged to use their gifts. It may not be perfect. I don't know what it looks like on the ground, but at least this person is able to identify things that women have opportunities to do in their church. This is one that, that really warmed my heart. Uh, I think this is from a, a complementarian church. And he said this, oh, I say he, I don't know who it was who actually filled it in. This year, we established an annual away day for the women, in part so that women within the church could teach one another. 
So that's a church that has identified that there is a problem when women aren't able to use their gifts in teaching, but also when women aren't being taught by one another. And we know that that's a thing they should do. Paul speaks about it, doesn't he, in Titus. Old women should train the young women. Here's a church that said, actually, our normal church structures aren't allowing that to happen. We need to do something about that. Here's what we're going to do to enable that to happen. It may not be the only solution, may not be the perfect solution, but at least they're recognising that there is an issue and they want to do something about it. Here's one that reflected experience I've had in a number of churches, and I, I wonder if it might be the same for you. Seems that a woman has to be married to a man with sufficient experience to co-lead a Bible study. Single women, regardless of experience, do not have opportunities to teach. That may be something that's a policy, but more likely it's something that just happens. Somebody doesn't really think it through. And what happens is there are no opportunities for women, even if they're experienced. Lots of people mention the kinds of things you'd expect, children's work, youth work, women's Bible studies, pastoral care, and of course in egalitarian churches, preaching and leading. What about opportunities for training for those women in our churches? Only lay reader training... So if a woman were to take herself to the Northwest Partnership course, I'm sure she would be encouraged. I think she might need encouragement at the earliest stage. She might need someone to come alongside her and say, do you know what, I think you'd be really good at X, Y, and Z. Have you thought about training? Have you thought about the Northwest Partnership? Here's how we as a church could help you to do that. Maybe we might need to help you with the, the costs of it. Maybe we might need to help you with childcare so that you can go and do it. If a woman were to take herself, whose responsibility is it to um, ensure that the gifts of a congregation are being used for the benefit of the whole church? I'd say that's the minister's responsibility. Here's a, a contrast. This was wonderful. This is not a, a huge church. I don't want to tell you which church it was, but it's not a huge church. It's probably not a church you've ever heard of. We supported one woman at Oak Hill for three years. We've sent women on the Northwest Training Course. We appoint female ministry trainees. We sent one woman on the CCEF, uh, that's the Counselling Certificate Course. We have one woman candidating for the Permanent Diaconate. That's what you can do if you prioritise women's ministry. If you say this is important, we're willing to invest time and money. None. This may change in future as the church grows, though I think we will be hard-pressed to find a biblical teaching position that a woman can occupy. I don't know exactly what that means, but it, I, I think what it means is he can't see that there will ever be enough work to justify employing a woman in their church and therefore training them. I, I'm, I'm, it's not that clear, is it? But it's not terribly encouraging. We will be hard-pressed to find a biblical teaching position that a woman can occupy. And, of course, so, several answers along the lines of none, just the same as for the men. The, the most common kind of things people identified, in-house training. Um, you know, my, my wife is terribly well-trained, and she'd be willing to train anyone who wants uh, ministry training courses, we already mentioned, and diocesan kind of training. So, where are we at? Where might we go? How are we doing? Is training as accessible for women as it is for men? Doesn't seem like it to me. Are women being employed on the same basis as men? I'm not convinced. 
Our church is making it a priority to have trained and gifted women on their staff team. Well, some clearly are. Some. I want to read you a job advert I came across a few months ago. If you're in the Facebook group, I did post this, and so you will have seen it before. This is the job uh, for a church in London. A spiritually mature woman with prior ministry experience to become the women's worker at name a church. This entails taking the lead in providing discipleship and pastoral care for the women. Sounds great. Sounds like this is a church really values women, uh, ministry by women, ministry for women. The salary for a church in London for this full-time job, 12 to 15,000 pounds. But there is accommodation provided in a shared flat with the ministry trainee. I don't think that is valuing women's ministry at all. Someone asked when I posted it in the Facebook group what that church should do. If, that, if those were its financial limitations, if that was really all it could afford, what should they have done? Isn't it better to employ someone uh, on bad terms and conditions than not to employ anyone at all? I think churches just need to be realistic. If that's what you can afford, you can't afford a full-time, experienced, senior women's worker in your church. You could afford maybe somebody part-time. You could afford somebody maybe more junior. So, you know, if you're offering 12 to 15,000 plus accommodation to someone who was on the Cornhill course or studying part-time at Oak Hill, I would think that would be appropriate. The other thing you could do is start teaching your church about the value of women's ministry until you've raised enough money to employ someone at an appropriate level. One thing you might do is stop employing that ministry trainee and use the money for that uh, to supplement the salary of a full-time trained, experienced worker. Don't muzzle the oxen, even if your oxen are female. So what could women's ministry look like? How can we be training women up to go and serve, not only in our own church, but maybe in other churches? How could we make it possible for as many who want training and need it to have it? What if they want more than a ministry training course? If you would be willing to support that gifted man in your congregation through theological college, what about that equally gifted woman? Let's think about what it means to live in God's generous economy. Let's not be penny-pinching about this. Instead, let's think big. Let's be deliberate and intentional about it for once. Let's think about the legacy we'd love to leave for the next generation of churches, not just for the women in those churches, but for the common good, for the good of the whole church. I think it's your responsibility as ministers and future ministers to be encouraging the women in your churches to recognise the gifts God has given them, to equip them, uh, particularly those with Bible teaching gifts and pastoral gifts, and then to enable them to make opportunities for them to use those gifts. And that will benefit not just the women, but your whole church. I am going to finish, but I, I just want to give you a, a brief personal testimony. My gift is, is Bible teaching. I've been in a lot of churches over the years, mostly in complementarian churches. No, that's not true. I've been in a lot of churches over the years, both egalitarian and complementarian churches, and it's been a difficult gift to have. I've had pastors who thought that because that was my gift, I should be on the preaching rotor. And when I said, no, I don't want to be on the preaching rotor, they had no idea what else I could do in their church. I've had others who saw that I had Bible teaching gifts and said, right, we must put you on the Sunday school rotor. I, I agreed, but it was a disaster. I, I mean, I could have told them that beforehand, but they were very persuasive. You really don't want to leave me in charge of your children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wonderfully, I've had one or two who have looked at me, 
seen my, my specific gifts and seen that they could be a blessing to the local church and found ways of making that happen. So please, I want to just say to you, whether you are male or female, whether you are complementarian or egalitarian or undecided uh, in your view of women's ministry, treat the women in your church as individuals. Get to know them and discover their gifts. Don't try and force them into a box labelled model Christian women, whether that's a woman who's making tea and looking after the children or whether that's a woman uh, who's standing up at the front leading and preaching. We are all different and we want to serve the church according to the gifts that God has given us as best we can. And it is your responsibility as church leaders now and in the future to help us do that. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. Oh, one more thing. Sorry, I forgot. I have got not a handout but a little sort of set of questions which maybe you could use to audit uh, your church and its view of women's ministry. I will give them to Lee, who will arrange for them to be passed around. Um, just maybe take home and think about your church, maybe keep them to use when you move to a church as a curate or an incumbent, and just think, um, how are we doing on this? Before you escape, Ros, is there anybody who's got any questions, Ros? Oh, yes. Hi, thank you. Um, so I've just finished working at, um, as the Youth, Children's and Families Worker at an egalitarian church in Lovely. And every summer we have um, a holiday club for teenagers, yep. at which I desperately have tried to kind of find a, a woman to speak, yeah. and utterly failed. Yeah. Um, how can... So it seems to me that the problem is kind of further back. five years earlier. Yeah, I agree exactly that. Right. So the problem is with how I'm encouraging a 14-year-old who I can, see, I can think of a, a girl in my mind who clearly has those gifts. Has yeah. those gifts. Yeah. Um, and I've obviously, obviously, we've kind of utterly failed to, <laughs> to, to leave. And, you know, and, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, there are a number of things. It is very difficult to um, that for that sort of change to be happening part of that is to do with the, the lack of female role models and and if you don't have those in the future generation it's you know you can't just manufacture them from nowhere um what i think you can be doing if you can identify those women you know as teenagers as students you know as, as young women is to be finding opportunities for them to try out those gifts at quite an early quite a controlled quite a um you know, small scale. Um, so that might be, for example, um, uh, I don't know if you have a, a sort of a, a toddler group or a creche or something like that. Maybe one week they read the Bible story or they, you know, help with the singing sort of time. You know, maybe as they develop, you sit down with them, you say, well, actually, you know, we're going to do this little spot here. What do you think I should do? And get them to help you think that through with them. So that they start to see this is something they could be involved in. Um, and then I think, and I, I would cast that net quite wide, actually, because there may be people we can really easily identify what their gifts are. There, there are likely to be others who have gifts that, that aren't obvious and stuff. So, you know, I would cast that net quite wide and, and make that a sort of a thing which everybody gets a chance to try and to see. But then I think a lot of it is, is going to be to do with the way that we talk and um, just thinking really carefully, just not 
um, yeah, just not making sort of gendered divisions when we're, we're talking about opportunities, when we're talking about, um, uh, you know, when we always listen to so-and-so in church. Well, actually, it's not that we listen to so-and-so, it's that we listen to the word. And so, you know, kind of taking those gendered things out as much as we can. Um, and then I think at the sort of, at the other end, it's saying, well, maybe I can't find a woman who can do the teaching for my whole holiday club. Can I find a woman who would be willing to have a go at a little bit of that? And that helps again, because you've got somebody up front, and they might not be doing everything, they might not be doing it brilliantly, but they're doing something. And so kind of working from both ends to try and make that a, a sort of a normal thing that people see and then see where that goes, yeah. But it, it is hard, and, and those things aren't going to happen overnight, that suddenly there's a whole raft of women who are feeling confident and, and are able to, to take on teaching roles. Should we do one more? Yeah, anybody else got a question? I'm going to say here, because Michael can ask me any time. Well, I've got a couple of hands. Oh, OK, go on, you say. Um, right, I've got three. Have we got... Can we finish it? Oh, go on. I'm in charge. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> go on, Anthony. I was interested by what you said about teaching roles outside of the preaching context. Yes. I think probably in many of our churches we rely on Sunday <coughs> sermon as the main yeah. means of teaching. Do you think that's something we should be reconsidering? Thank you, yeah. I do. And so I think... I think the preaching role is absolutely central and vital in a church. I think it is the primary way by which the pastor of the church exercises his positive pastoral ministry, um, you know, and the sort of negative pastoral ministry would be church discipline. But, but I think preaching is, is the primary way that that is exercised. And, and so I wouldn't want to say that, that we should make that any less significant. But I think if we are relying on that to be the main way we are helping people to engage with the word, or the only way we're helping people to engage with the word, then I think, that, yeah, I think we're doing people a huge disservice. And again, it becomes a little bit like I was talking about with the, the sort of, if you only ever hear men preach, you kind of get used to thinking of yourself in that sort of way. I think, you know, if you're only ever learning through a sermon, it sort of almost disempowers people from reading the, the word themselves and, and, you know, that that great Reformation legacy that we have of engaging with the word ourselves. So I would say um, that, there are, that there are likely to be both men and women in your churches with teaching gifts that are not preaching gifts. And therefore, those, God's given those for our benefit, so we should be finding ways to use them, yeah. Just a couple of more questions. Any more questions? They're all being shy now. Go on then, Michael. What would you suggest for particularly a complementarian church leader who has a woman come forward and say, this is my gift and here's how I want to use yeah. it, yeah. but the church leader feels that's inappropriate? Sure. So I think, I mean, that goes back to what I said at the beginning. The, the point of those gifts being given isn't for us to stand on our rights and say, this is my gift and this is how I want to use it. So I think there is... Um, you know, there needs to be a much broader conversation around that of, yes, let's discern what your gifts are. You know, sometimes people think they have gifts which they don't, and, and we have to very gently help them to see that that's not the case. But, you know, to discern that that's their gift, and also then work through that process of what is the best way to serve this local congregation using that gift, or actually, 
um, might God be calling you to use that gift elsewhere? And I think, um, I, I sort of want to say, I'm not going to say much more than that. Should we stop there? Yeah, we'll st stop there.